2 Kings chapter 16. Chapter 16 and verse 1. In the seventeenth year of Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, became king. Ahaz was twenty years old when he became king. He reigned sixteen years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. And even made his son pass through the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out from before the sons of Israel. He sacrificed and burned incense on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Father, we ask your wisdom, we ask your blessing and your guidance as we study your word tonight. We pray, Lord, for revelation of truth. And we invite your Holy Spirit to just speak into our hearts and to teach us by your word. Help us to see things clearly and to know you better tonight, Lord. Make the word alive to us, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we begin 2 Kings 16 tonight, we're just verses away from the fall of Israel to Assyria, which we'll get to in chapter 17. But before we get there, we have to briefly consider one bad king, an evil dude in the southern kingdom of Judah, the twelfth king of Judah, by name Ahaz. I want you to think about four, maybe five points here of note about this King Ahaz. Some things to learn from him and to see in him. And the first one is simply this. Ahaz fried his own son. Now you're going to see a little bit later that after Ahaz dies, his son Hezekiah will take the throne. But it's a different son. I'm assuming, I'm guessing, Ahaz fried his firstborn son. We know from previous studies that the phrase to pass through the fire, which you see there in verse 3, he walked in the way of the kings of Israel and even made his son pass through the fire, is literally to go into the fire of sacrifice, which was characteristic of Molech worship. Molech, that iron god with the outstretched arms that were heated up red hot, and they laid the infants on the red hot arms of Molech, where they would sizzle and scream until they fell down into the belly of Molech, which was the furnace itself. And that was how the pagan cultures surrounding Israel worshipped this god, Molech. He had different names. Marduk was one of them. You'll see a couple other variations on the name further on in the chapter tonight. But this, this worship of Molech is, is almost unthinkable. And yet I'm not so sure that the world is any less depraved in this area today than it was back then. Whether it's in the belly of Molech or in the womb of a woman exercising her right to choose or even in the absence of a parent who is birthing a career and their own success and prosperity. You see, that's what Molech worship was about. Sacrifice a child so that you can be successful. Sacrifice an infant so that prosperity will reach you in your life. And in any case, 
whether it's the horrific sacrifice to Molech or the things that I mentioned today, in any case, the child is still the one that gets burned. The child is the one who pays for it. And I'm telling you this just to say it was nothing less than pure self-serving motives that brought Ahaz, king of Judah, to the point of sacrificing his own son. He wanted success. It was all about him. It was the focus of selfishness. And that's where I believe America and you and I have a tendency to lean this direction more than we realize. The depth and the, and the level of our selfishness. So many parents frustrated by their children who are just calling for attention because they're too busy sacrificing their kids on the God of success. And there's only one cure for this kind of selfishness and the Bible has it. Philippians chapter 2 verse 3. Where Paul writes, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Taking the form of a bondservant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. And that is the ultimate expression of unselfishness, was Jesus going to the cross, putting all of humanity before himself. And Paul says that's the attitude. That's the mind. I thank God for my children because they constantly remind me of this. Because they do have demands and they do have needs. And they are selfish little buggers, you know. And yet, and yet, I have learned and continue to learn how easy it is to put myself ahead of them. Well, Ahaz fried his own son for his own self-interest. But there's something more shocking to me than Ahaz's sacrifice. And it's this. Ahaz followed four good kings. He followed four good kings for all his wickedness. His dad, Jotham, his grandpa, Uzziah, great-granddad, Amaziah, and great-great-grandpa, Joash, were all good kings. We have had a run of four good kings in a row in the kingdom of Judah. One after the other, taking after their father's footsteps. Not, not yet quite to the point of the footsteps of David, but at least following the Lord. At least putting their hands to the work of the Lord. We have seen this. And wouldn't you think that now the fifth generation Ahaz would follow suit. That he would do as his fathers had done. That he would see from their example. And that he would live by that. Well, you know the truth of this. Romans 14.12, Paul says, Each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Hebrews 4.13 says, There's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. What's ironic is the very first sin, the very first sin of man was followed by the very first finger pointing. The Lord said, Adam, what have you done? And Adam said, she made me do it. And the Lord said, Eve, what have you done? And she says, the devil made me do it. And it was immediately focusing on other people instead of the self. We all have to decide whether we're going to follow the Lord or not follow the Lord. And we're all going to give an account to the Lord one way or the other if we've chosen to follow him. People will say, as you talk to them about Jesus, well, I, I like what I hear, and, and it's all good, this Bible stuff, this Jesus stuff, but what, what about my dad? He's not a believer. If I become a believer, what am I saying about him? Or what about my brother? He's not a believer. Or my sister? What about my friends who don't believe? If, if I commit to God, I, am I condemning them? The answer is very clear, gang. 
Instead of what about my dad or what about my sister or what about my friend, the question is what about you? What about you? So that's where Jesus would start. What about you? He can deal with all the rest. He's big enough to handle what we can't. People say, what about the pygmies? Well, what about them? You don't think God's aware of them? You don't think God is aware of those in the jungles of the world who have never heard of Jesus? You don't think he's, he's picked up on that? The question is, what about you? What will be your accounting to the Lord? Well, Ahaz fried his son on the altar of sacrifice, and Ahaz followed four good kings, yet he himself was the most evil king in Judah. What's amazing is you're going to see his son, Hezekiah, will be one of two kings out of all the kings, both Judah and Israel, 39 kings. Two of them are actually referred to as walking in the footsteps of David. Ahaz's son doesn't look at his father and blame him. Well, dad was evil. I can't help it. You know, dad was an alcoholic, so I am. Well, dad was a pervert, so I've got to be. No, Hezekiah said, I will give an account to the Lord. And he follows him. We're going to get into some good study coming up here. Some real positive stuff which we could use at this point in 2 Kings as we come to Hezekiah in chapter 18. But that won't be tonight. Chapter 16, verse 5 going on. It tells us then Rezin, king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war. And they besieged Ahaz, but could not overcome him. We find out from Chronicles that the reason they come up and besiege Ahaz is they're trying to get him in an alliance with them to fight against Assyria. He won't do it. And so they come up against him to fight him, see if they could drive him down a bit. And it tells us in verse 6, At that time, Rezin, king of Aram, recovered Elat for Aram, and he cleared the Judeans out of Elat entirely. And the Aramans came to Elat and have lived there to this day. That is, to the time of the writing of Second Kings. There's something interesting here I want to point out before we go on. In verse 6, we have a first mention. If you've been going through the Word with us, you know. And they become less and less frequent the further in we go. But especially when we study Genesis, we talk a lot about the first mention of a certain word. first mention of love, or the first mention of sacrifice, or the first mention of blood. And these different words. And interestingly, in Scripture, the first time a word is mentioned or used often gives you a lot of information about that word. It's just one of the many marvelous things about God's Word. And here in verse 6, we have a first mention. This is the first time the word Jew is used. In verse 6. You see it if you're reading out of the NASB as Judeans. The King James Version translates it Jew, and it's the Hebrew word Yehudi. Yehudi is where we get the word Jew in Scripture. And in this verse, what we're told about the Jews, and the first mention of this word Jew, is that Rezin, king of Aram, cleared out the Judeans. Literally in the Hebrew, he cast out the Jews. Which to me is interesting, because isn't that a picture of Jewish history? If anyone has the right to bear the title castaway, it's the Jewish people. Cast out of their land. Cast out of every decent country on the earth. Always cast out, always kicked out, always shunned. The Jewish people. And here in the first mention of the word Jews, we see that they're cast out of Elat. Elat is a city down in the southern tip of Israel. We'll be going there this next, what, March? Uh, March of next year, we'll be going to Elat and seeing it. It's right on the seacoast, the Red Sea. It's beautiful. Dolphins swimming there and everything. 
So we'll be able to see that. But they were cast out, the Jews. Verse 7 going on says, So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and deliver me from the hand of the king of Aram and from the hand of the king of Israel who are rising up against me. So, so the king of Aram and the king of Israel are trying to get him to help them fight against Assyria. He goes around their back to Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria and says, I, I'll, I'll align with you. I want to be on your side. You're bigger. <laughs> You're badder. And I think I'll be better protected with you. Ahaz took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and the treasuries of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. Verse 9, So the king of Assyria listened to him, and the king of Assyria went up against Damascus. This would be now against the capital of Israel in the north. He went up against Damascus and captured it and carried the people of it away into exile and cur and put resin to death. Israel is starting to fall. Their capital just went down. The complete capture and deportation of the, of the Israelites has not happened yet, but Samaria has just gone down. By the way, I'm going to pause to tell you something that I think is really cool here. You're not going to, you wouldn't see it if you weren't looking for it. And we're not going to see this particular prophet until 2 Kings 19, but the prophet Isaiah now has come on the scene. The prophet Isaiah, behind the words of what's happening right here in these verses in chapter 16, the prophet Isaiah goes to King Ahaz of Judah with a message. And what's amazing about the message is he speaks a word, Isaiah does, that turns out to be one of the greatest messianic prophecies in all scripture. Messianic prophecy, you know what I mean by that. Prophecies of the coming of Messiah. Prophecies of of the birth of Jesus, literally. Turn in your Bibles, keep a finger there, and turn over to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. Now the whole of of chapter 7 is about what's going on here. And there's a little bit of history there, but beginning in verse 10 of Isaiah 7, and Isaiah is easy to find, it's pretty much in the middle of Scripture, real close to the Psalms. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 10. It tells us the Lord spoke again to Ahaz. Now he's speaking through the prophet Isaiah. And he says, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz says, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Hold us hold on a second there. Ahaz is not being humble here. He's being defiant. God says, ask me for a sign, Ahaz. Come on, let's communicate a little bit here. Ask me for something to show you that I will take care of you, and I'll show it to you. And Ahaz says, I'm going to ask you for a sign. I don't need your help. I've already made an alliance with the king of Assyria. I'm okay. That's what's happening in his response. I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Verse 13, then he said, Listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men, that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, watch this, the Lord himself will give you a sign. You won't ask for it? I'll give you one. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. You've heard it at Christmas. It's a favorite verse to preach about at that time of year. In fact, if you'll keep your finger there and go all the way over to Matthew chapter 1 in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1 in verse 18. It tells us the following. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, that is sexually, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. 
Verse 19, chapter 1. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua, God saves. For he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill, Matthew writes, what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, this would be Isaiah, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. It happened 700 years earlier when Isaiah went to Ahaz and brought this prophecy. And Ahaz, gang, forsook it. The third thing to note about Ahaz, he bribed his son, he followed four good kings, and he forsook a fantastic prophecy. He forsook a fantastic prophecy. He rejected it. He would not listen to it. God brings a prophecy that is absolutely amazing, and we find out again later, wasn't really even for Ahaz. You're not going to listen to me now. Well, we'll see if Israel listens in 700 years. And here's the sign, and it's the sign of a child born of a virgin. It's amazing to me that this prophecy, precious to me, one of my favorite scriptures to look at and think about, especially around Christmas time, as we consider the birth of Jesus then, this prophecy, like a, like a beautiful gift handed to mankind, was first presented to Ahaz. This faithless, wicked, sun-sacrificing, idol-worshipping king is the one who receives the sign of Emmanuel. Joseph heard the words of the angel and he responded with faithfulness. Ahaz heard the prophecy as first spoken by Isaiah and responded with unfaithfulness. In fact, 2 Chronicles 28:19 tells us the Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had brought about a lack of restraint in Judah and was very unfaithful to the Lord. But I want you to think about something here. The man to whom this first promise of Emmanuel came, the man who was given this precious prophetic word, was a man who had sacrificed his own son. Consider the contrast between the two. Ahaz sacrificed his son on the arms of the god Molech. The Lord God sacrificed his son on the arms of the cross. But that's where the comparison and the similarity ends. For Ahaz, he sacrificed his son for his own temporary success. The Lord sacrificed his son for mankind's eternal salvation. Ahaz sacrificed his son in a repugnant way. The sacrifice of God's son was redemptive. What I'm saying is this. The sacrifice of a child to any idol did nothing but cost a life. In other words, it was exercised in futility. Child sacrifice, and part of the reason God abhorred it so much, it was brutal, it was awful, but even more than that, it was absolute futility. It did nothing save cost the life of a child. The sacrifice of Jesus, on the other hand, achieved something of immeasurable worth. It wasn't an exercise in futility, it was the execution of God's faithfulness. It was God following through in something He proclaimed all the way back at the very beginning, at the very first sin. I already mentioned the sin of Adam and Eve and how they blamed each other and blamed the serpent. And you know what the Lord said at that point? He said, Eve, and you Bible students may remember this, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. 
He said actually to the serpent that the seed of the woman would bruise his head. First mention of the gospel in scripture. All the way back then. What do you mean the first mention of the gospel? Women don't have seeds. Women have eggs. And men provide the seeds. But God spoke of something miraculous. The woman would have a seed that would bruise the head of the serpent. And that seed was Jesus Christ. Absolutely amazing. The faithfulness of God was executed in the sacrifice of Jesus. Sometimes people say, boy, you know, God got all over people about child sacrifice and then turned around and did the same thing to his own son. Well, two big differences. Number one, God's sacrifice of Jesus was not futile. It was absolutely worth everything. And number two, Jesus made the choice. Infants sacrificed to idols had no choice in the matter. In abortion today, child has no choice. What about that choice? I'm pro-choice. Well, okay, give the child a choice. Wait until the child is old enough to tell you whether or not they want to live or die. And then, and then you can go ahead with it. You know, if, they, if they're in league with the mom, yeah, let's, let's go ahead and, and abort me. You know, that's choice. Jesus had the choice. He knelt down, sweated blood in Gethsemane, and chose to fulfill his Father's will on the cross in that sacrifice. It wasn't futile. It was worth everything. Romans chapter 8 verse 3 tells us what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Now, now listen to me on this. The law was perfect. The law is perfect. The Bible tells us that. If, you, if, if I were able to, to take the law and enact every specific detail of it and follow it through perfectly, we could be saved on our own. We could stand up at the gates of heaven and say, God, I did it. Here's the resume. And it's a long one. It's good. I didn't even eat the goat boiled in the mother's milk. I didn't do any of that weird stuff. I did great. If we could accomplish that, we could be saved. The law was perfect, but it was weak through the flesh. In other words, the law is perfect. We are so imperfect, we can't even handle it. And so Paul said... God took care of this. He sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Someone says, why did Jesus have to die? You tell them, it was because He fulfilled the perfect requirements of the law. He kept the law perfectly and then became the sacrifice for us who could not. The sacrifice was determined by the Father, accepted by the Son, and it was the exact opposite of futile, which is why into eternity we're going to sing the words of Revelation 5.12. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Back to chapter 16. Chapter 16, verse 10. Now Ahaz, he went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. And he saw the altar which was at Damascus. This is a a pagan altar there. And King Ahaz sent to Urijah the priest the pattern of the altar and its model according to all its workmanship. So Urijah the the priest built an altar according to all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. Thus Urijah the priest made it before the coming of King Ahaz from Damascus. So Ahaz goes up to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, this pagan king of Assyria. When he's there, he sees the altar that they use for their sacrifices, and he goes, wow, that's cool. I want one of those. He gets the plans, the dimensions, he sends it back down, and then he heads back down to Jerusalem to see what Uriah has done. It says, verse 12, when the king came from Damascus, the king saw the altar, 
And the king approached the altar and went up to it and burned his burnt offering and his meal offering and poured out his drink offering and sprinkled the blood of his peace offerings on the altar. These are all Jewish offerings that he gave. But it's on this different altar. Verse 14 tells us the bronze altar, that would be the original one that was in the temple. The bronze altar which was before the Lord, he brought from the front of the house from between his altar and the house of the Lord and he put it to the north side of his altar. He set it aside over here. Kind of out of the way. And then King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest saying, Upon the great altar burn the morning offering, morning burnt offering and the evening meal offering and the king's burnt offering and his meal offering and the burnt offering of all the people of the land and their meal offering and their drink offerings and sprinkle on it the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice on this new pagan altar. That's what I want to happen. And then he says... But the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. Verse 16. So Uriah the priest did according to all that King Ahaz commanded. What is happening here? Fourth thing to note about King Ahaz. He is fair weather friending the Lord. Ahaz is fair weather friending the Lord. He has discovered this new design for this new altar and he's really impressed by it. The altar of this pagan king. And so he has his own built. And what he does is he takes God's altar and sets it to the side and says, you know, when I need to inquire of the Lord, I'll use that one. Otherwise, let's use this cool looking new one that I've designed and and I want us to have this. Interesting. He replaces the bronze altar of God's design with one of pagan origin. It's bad enough that he replaces the altar. It's worse that he sets the other one aside. He pushes it off to the side, just in case. I mean, Ahaz does what I'm afraid a lot of people do these days. They act like God is a pathetic puppy. Just sitting by the door, you know, tail wagging, waiting for you to get home. They can't, can't wait till you call their name. They're just jumping up and down, excited. And others are more business-like with the Lord. They would say, oh, I like to keep God on retainer, you know. You can set aside in case the copier goes down or the computer needs repair or in case I'm in crisis. Then I'll call on the Lord. Then I'll go to the bronze altar and use that. You know, if I need it. Otherwise, I want to use my own thing here. Ahaz, fair weather friend of the Lord. There's no relationship there. God is to Ahaz a rabbit's foot. That's about the extent of the relationship. Just another idol to inquire by. Again, the Lord invites us to an all-or-nothing proposition. A real relationship or no relationship, but nothing in between. 2 Timothy 2.19 says, The firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. He knows those who are His. You're either one of His or you're not. Oh, Rick, that sounds awfully black and white. It is. It's very clear in Scripture. God knows those who are His. And if you are His, by the way, you should know it. I've done a lot of thinking about this over the years when Christians will say, boy, I just wish I could be more sure of my salvation. And I've tried to come up with some things to encourage and everything else, but the bottom line, gang, is if you're not sure you're God's, maybe you're not. If you don't know, if you haven't given your heart to Him and you don't know that you're saved... Well, then maybe you ought to stop and think about it. Jesus said in John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. So it it should never be a question as to whether or not we know we're saved. Because if we know the Lord, there's no doubt. Husbands, how do you know, how do you know that you belong to your wife? Sean, how do you know? You look at her, and and you, you, you think... 
Oh, I wonder if I'm married today. Kind of messed up, you know, with the bills lately. And she might be, I don't know, are we still married? I'm not sure. I mean, it's, it's silly. Wives, how often do you look at your husband and wonder if he loves you? Well, maybe that's more often than not. But how do we know? How do we know our friends are really our friends? We know. We don't walk up to someone who we're in a relationship with and go, Listen, I just need to know. Do you know me? Are we, Pat, are we, are we okay? Do, do we know each other? You know, I know we had lunch the other day, but do we really know each other? It's silly. Of course we do. And I think the Lord would say to those Christians who go, I'm just not sure if I'm saved. I think He'd say, don't you know? Aren't you sure? Do you you really question my faithfulness to that point that that you think I would just drop you? It's not how I work. If you're in doubt about your relationship with the Lord, boy, I'll tell you what, drop to your knees and start talking to Him about it. Romans 8.16 tells us, The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. His spirit tells our spirit. So it shouldn't even be a question. Ahaz was not a child of God. In fact, he preferred to be called, if you look back in verse, I believe it was verse 7. Yeah, verse 7 he says to the king of Assyria, I'm your son. He's not a son of God. He's a son of the king of Assyria. That's where he is putting all his eggs, into Assyria's basket. He wants to be a son to Tiglath-Pileser. So read on, verse 17, it tells us, Then King Ahaz cut off the borders of the stands. He's in the temple now. Having the stands cut off, he removed the labor from them. He also took down the, the sea from the bronze oxen which were before it and put it on a pavement of stone. He covered the, the covered way for the Sabbath which they had built in the house and the outer entry of the king he removed from the house of the Lord. Watch this. Because of the king of Assyria. What does that mean? Number five. Last thing to note about Ahaz here. Ahaz fashioned his faith around his enemy. He said, the king of Assyria doesn't like this king's entrance. I'm getting rid of it. The king of Assyria would prefer we don't have this Sabbath covering. It's gone. The king of Assyria wants me to use this altar. We will. The king of Assyria wants me to take down this this labor for washing. We'll take it down. We're doing it because of the king of Assyria. He remodels these aspects of the temple to please Assyria and their king, You might call him, brace yourselves, you might call him a Tiglath pleaser. (laughs) What he is. Sorry. Listen, gang, if my faith, if my faith is formed around the person of Jesus Christ, I'm going to be fine. If my faith is not formed around Jesus and centered on him, eventually it will be formed around the enemy. What do you mean by that? John chapter 8, verse 42. Jesus said, to the uh, Pharisees in this, in this grand conversation argument that he's having with them he says if God were your father you would love me for I proceeded forth and have come from God for I have not even come on my own initiative but he sent me why do you not understand what I'm saying it is because you cannot hear my word he says you are of your father the devil and you do not and you want to do the desires of your father now this is, this is shocking here. He's talking to the religious leaders. This is the religious right of the day. The Pharisees were the leaders of all conservative thinking in terms of religion in Israel. And as they stood up, Jesus said, You're doing the desires of your father the devil. What? No, our father's God, man. If your father was God, then your faith would be fashioned around him. But as it is, your faith, Jesus is saying, is fashioned around your enemy. My enemy, Satan. He says, you are of your father the devil. 
You want to do his desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he's a liar and the father of lies. But Jesus says, I speak truth and you do not believe me. Why wouldn't these religious leaders believe Jesus when he told them who he was? Why wouldn't they believe him when he spoke the truth? Because they were already fashioning their faith around the enemy. They already were seeking to please themselves, the flesh, and the very enemy himself because they were not seeking instead to please the Lord. Well, verse 19 says, The rest of the acts of Ahaz which he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Ahaz slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, and his son Hezekiah reigned in his place. Now we move back to the north for the last time. To the tragic fall of Israel. Chapter 17, verse 1. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hoshea, the son of Allah, became king over Israel in Samaria and reigned nine years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, only not as the kings of Israel who were before him. So he was bad. He wasn't quite as bad. I guess there were levels of evil here, and it wasn't quite as bad as those before, but he was bad nonetheless. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, this would be Tiglath-Pileser's son, for those of you who are keeping track. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against him, and Hoshea became his servant and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria found conspiracy in Hoshea, who had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and had offered no tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. So the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded the whole land and went up to Samaria and besieged it three years. Verse 6, In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and carried Israel away into exile to Assyria and settled them in Halah, Chabor, and on the river of Gazan and in the cities of the Medes. How in the world did this happen? Why did it come to this? Well, before I answer that, there's a myth I need to point out and tell you what the Bible has to say about it. There are some, and you may have heard of this, who teach and believe a myth called uh, about the so-called lost tribes of Israel. Maybe you've heard this. The ten lost tribes. The claim is that after the northern kingdom fell to Assyria in 722 B.C., that they were dispersed to all the nations and eventually began to migrate. That these ten tribes migrated from Assyria when they finally got some freedom. They migrated west into the countries in Europe. Truthfully, the, world, the word tells us exactly where they settled. In verse 6, they settled in Chalach, Habor, and on the river of Gazan, and in the cities of the Medes. They settled there. So they didn't go anywhere. They were right there. But there's more to this story. Some people say these Israelites, who they believe migrated west, they became... British, Finnish, Swedish. In fact, the reason they believe that is the Hebrew word for man is ish. <laughs> so they, they make an illogical leap to say, oh, well then the Danish are actually from the tribe of Dan, the Danish people. Interesting. British, Swedish, Danish, 
ridiculous. I mean, the whole thing makes no sense when you look at it scripturally. The ten northern tribes were driven out, even dispersed, but they were never lost. Listen to this, Isaiah 46, verse 3. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, you who have been born by me from birth and have been carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I will be the same. Even to your graying years, I will bear you. I have done it, and I will carry you, and I will bear you, and I will deliver you. Did you hear what he said? He said, listen to me, O house of Jacob, and the remnant of the house of Israel. God has not lost track of his people. God is not sure, where did they go? Oh, they're lost. Oh, well, so much for the northern tribes. We'll just try and do something with Judah and maybe little Benjamin. Here's the deal, gang. There are a handful of explanations as to what actually happened to the ten northern tribes, and the best explanations are found right in Scripture itself. Second Chronicles chapter 11, we learn there that a large number of the original ten tribes of Israel didn't stay in the north. Back when Jeroboam took the north and Rehoboam took the south and they divided up the two kingdoms, there was a large number of people who then migrated down south they were Reubenites and Danites and Manassites and, and of all the, tri- the ten tribes from the north. And they came down south so they could be near Jerusalem and continue to worship the Lord God. Second Chronicles 11.16 says, Those from all the tribes of Israel who had set their hearts on seeking the Lord God of Israel followed the Levites to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord God of their fathers. And they settled there. We're told further on in Nehemiah. Nehemiah, the book that is written about the return of the people of Judah back to the land of Israel. In that book, the people were called Jews 11 times after Judah. They're called Israelites 22 times. So apparently Nehemiah understood that the people who went into captivity to Babylon and came back included both people of the tribe of Judah and of all the tribes of Israel. So the whole of Israel was still represented. Down in Luke chapter 2, verse 26, we're told the prophet, prophetess Anna is of the tribe of Asher, one of the ten northern tribes. Well, in Jesus' day, here's a prophetess from a tribe from Israel who's still living there. James chapter 1, verse 1. James, the brother of Jesus, writes his letter and greets the twelve tribes of Israel. He's writing to all the people. And after calling his twelve apostles, Jesus gave an immediate mission. He said in Matthew 10.5, Do not go the way of the Gentiles, do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He says, as you go preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, not just Jews from Judah, but go to the house of all Israel. We read in Acts chapter 2 verse 11, Peter, in his great sermon, initially he refers to the men of Judah, but down in verse 22 of Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching and he begins to look around and he changes his tune and he calls them not men of Judah, but men of Israel. Because there were Israelites represented from all over the place. And in Romans chapter 11, Paul, who is from the tribe of Benjamin of Judah, even refers to himself as an Israelite. Well, why would he do that? Because for a Jew, whether you're from Judah or from one of the other tribes of Israel, you're a Jew, you're an Israelite, you are a part of that chosen people. What's the point? The point is the northern tribes were never lost. The northern tribes never wandered off and became a different people. The the danger, and the reason why I even take time with this game, the danger of this kind of thinking of the lost tribes is that people then say from Europe they migrated to America and the Church of America is now New Israel, its replacement theology. And it's bogus. And it's unbiblical. 
fact, we see in Revelation chapter five, verse or chapter seven, verses five through eight, the people of Israel who are sealed for protection, 144,000. We see a list of 12 tribes, 12,000 from each specific tribe by tribe by tribe who are sealed and protected in the coming tribulation. Furthermore, in Ezekiel chapter 48, the prophet describes the real estate of Israel in the coming millennial kingdom and what that will be like. And he goes through and he lists all of the tribes of Israel, tribe by tribe by tribe, and the real estate that they'll be given. God has not lost his people. In fact, the Lord never loses his people, which should be really good news for us. And we are in the hand of the Father, Jesus said in John chapter 10, and nobody can snatch us out of the Father's hand. We are secure there. More safe. So, what was the final straw that cost Israel the land? I'll give you a few final straws. Verse 7. Verse 7 tells us this came about, the fall of Israel came about because the sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up from the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and they had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord had driven out from before the sons of Israel, and in the customs of the kings of Israel which they had introduced. The sons of Israel did things secretly which were not right against the Lord their God. We already read this verse in Hebrews 4. Everything is going to be open. Everything laid bare. There's no such thing as secret sin. We all need to be aware of that. Gentlemen, with the internet, we need to be aware there is no such thing as secret sin. We have a thing on our computer I've mentioned in here before. Parents, it's a good thing to pick up. It's called SafeEyes. And SafeEyes is just an internet monitoring. It's like a net nanny software. And we have it on our computers at home. And it's not because we don't trust our kids, it's because we want to protect our kids. But I'll tell you what, the safe eyes are the eyes of Jesus Christ, who sees everything. And we think we get away with things in secret, and we think we can sin over here, and no one's going to know what I'm, what I'm doing. And the truth is, everything is laid bare. Everything is open before Him to whom we have to give an account. Hebrews 4.13 the people of Israel thought they were getting away with stuff, doing things secretly which were not right against the Lord their God, verse 9. Moreover, they built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set for themselves sacred pillars and asherim, those are asherah poles, on every high hill and on, under every green tree. In other words, they were all over the land of Israel. And there they burned incense on all the high places as the nations did which the Lord had carried away to exile before them. And they did evil things provoking the Lord. The very thing he warned them against is exactly what they went and did. Verse 12, they served idols concerning which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this thing. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and every seer saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments, my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you through my servants, the prophets. Straw number one, disobedience. That's simple, it's obvious, they just disobeyed God. God said, don't, and they did. Disobedience is the first thing that cost them the land. But even the word disobedience, it begs a question, gang. Does God have the right to require obedience? Does he have the right to ask us to obey him? What gives a person the right to say, you need to obey me? I mean, parents talking to our kids, when our kids you know, try to rebel against what we say, what gives us the right to say, you will obey me? I'll tell you what gives us the right. The blood, sweat, and tears of years of raising the little snot, you know? 
I'm not talking about my kids because none of them are little snots. They're great kids. <laughs> you know, I wonder sometimes, Cheryl, when I say things like that, people go, oh, he called his kids snots. <laughs> the words come out, but they don't at home, do they? Have you ever called any of our kids little snots to their face? A parent has the right because they've taken on the difficult task of child rearing. God has the right because He reared the children of Israel. He brought them up. In fact, let me read this to you. Psalm 81. Ran across this just this afternoon. Psalm 81 and verse 6. The Lord says, I relieved his shoulder of the burden. His hands were freed from the basket. You called in trouble and I rescued you. He's speaking to Israel here. I answered you in the hiding place of thunder. I proved you at the waters of bitterness. Hear, O my people, and I will admonish you. O Israel, if you would listen to me. Let there be no strange God among you. Nor shall you worship any foreign God. I, the Lord, am your God, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. You get the picture of little birds in a nest and the mother bird coming and just feeding and taking care of every need. He says, I'll do that for you, Israel. Open the mouth wide and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice and Israel did not obey me. So I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart to walk in their own devices, which by the way is what Paul said God does with mankind in Romans chapter 1. I will give them over to their choices to their depravity to do what they have chosen to do he says oh that my people would listen to me that Israel would walk in my ways I would quickly subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their adversaries those who hate the Lord would pretend obedience to him and their time of punishment would be forever but I would feed you with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock I would satisfy you says the Lord Why disobey the Lord? Why does He even have the right to ask for their obedience? It's not just because of all that He's done. Listen to me. It's not just because He raised Israel. Gang, God has the right to ask for obedience because of who He is. Simply because of who He is. If He did nothing for us, He still has the right to say, I am the Lord, obey me. Seventy-five times in the Torah alone, that is the first five books, seventy-five times He says this, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. You realize that's how He starts out the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord. Exodus 20, verse 2. You shall have no other gods before me. The first time he makes this statement, by the way, I am the Lord, is to Abraham in Genesis 15, verse 7. As he's promising him the land, as he's making covenant with him, he's cutting covenant with Abraham, and he says, I am the Lord. And I have called you out. And I will make you a great nation, because I am the Lord. The second time he says it is in Genesis 28, verse 13. He says it to Jacob. I am the Lord, and through you, Jacob, as I promised your father Abraham and your father Isaac, so I now promise you, I am the Lord, and I will do it. The last time that God utters this phrase is in Zechariah chapter 10, verse 16, and I share it with you because it's very telling as to the heart of God. He says, I will strengthen the house of Judah and I will save the house of Joseph, that is, Israel. And I will bring them back because I have had compassion on them and they will be as though I had not rejected them for I am the Lord and I will answer them. 
He has the right to ask for obedience simply because he is the Lord. He just is. Now what about us? Not many here are Jews. So is he only the Lord of Israel? I notice this, this phrase, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, stops at the end of the Old Testament and is not repeated in the New Testament. Not exactly. It shifts a little bit. It changes. Paul says in Romans 10.9, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is the primary issue of our lives. More than any other thing, it's the issue of lordship. Is he the Lord? Does he have the right to call us to obedience? And will we accept that and follow him? That's the deal. Lordship. Will you give your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Do we accept his right and his authority to call us to obedience? first straw was disobedience. The second straw was disbelief. Verse 14 tells us, However, they did not listen, but they stiffened their neck like their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. Now they saw enough to believe in the existence. It wasn't just that they didn't believe in God, it's that they did not believe God. They didn't believe Him for His word. They didn't believe Him for His provision. They didn't believe Him for who He said He was. They just didn't believe Him. Disbelief. 2 Chronicles 36 expounds on this. Verse 15 says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by His messengers because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised His words, scoffed at His prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against His people until there was no remedy. For 600 or more years... Since the people came into the land, God sent word to them, sent the prophets to them, said, please turn around. 200 years just in the rule of the Israelite kings. 200 years, kind of the length of time America's been around. He kept coming back to the people. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, until there was no remedy. Disobedience, disbelief, straw number three, defiance. Defiance. Verse 15. They rejected his statutes and his covenant which he made with their fathers, and his warnings with which he warned them. And they followed vanity and became vain. The, the Hebrew word for vain, gang, is empty. Vanity is emptiness. What he's saying is they followed emptiness and became empty. If that's what you want, vain things, material things, if you want to chase after that, you will end up empty. And they went after the nations which surrounded them, concerning which the Lord had commanded them not to do like them. Verse 16, They forsook all the commandments of the Lord their God, and made for themselves molten images, even two calves, and made an Asherah, and worshipped all the host of heaven, which by the way is astrology. If you're into an astrological sign or following the signs of the zodiac, guess what? That's one of the reasons Israel got kicked out of the land. It was astrology, worship of the host of heaven, and they served Baal. And they made their sons and their daughters pass through the fire. They practiced divination and enchantments and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him. So verse 18, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight, literally from his face. No longer would his face shine upon them but they are removed from his presence. None was left except the tribe of Judah. 
By the way, little Benjamin was left too because the tribe of Benjamin was down there to the south, connected to Judah, and was really considered as a part of Judah. So the ten tribes are taken away. Disobedience, disbelief, and finally defiance. And it's a pattern, gang. It is a process. Disobedience leading to disbelief, leading to finally defiance of the ways of the Lord. And the story of Israel is the story of humanity. It's what we all have done. Rejecting the innate authority of God, refusing to believe that He means what He says, and finally standing in rebellious defiance of the very hand that feeds and the very heart that saves. And we've mentioned before, as you go through Revelation and you see the Lord in that perilous time of tribulation, you see the world defying God, it gets worse and worse and worse until it continues to say they refuse to repent so as to be saved. They just wouldn't do it. In the face of great meteors crashing into the earth, obvious signs in the heavens, the prophecy of, of, of two witnesses in Jerusalem and all that God is doing, angels flying around, a specific angel flying around speaking the gospel all over the world, and the people say, we will repent. And it's where the world is going to end up. Disbelief to disobedience, or disobedience to disbelief, followed by ultimately defiance. And that's where Israel ended up and why they got kicked out of the land. Why does mankind think it's not going to happen to us? Why would Americans think it can't happen to us? A 200-year-old country that has so gone the way of Israel. We have so followed the kings. Well, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Judah at this point was not faring much better. Verse 19 says, Judah did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs which Israel had introduced. Which begs another question. Well, then why wasn't Judah wiped out at this time? Why didn't they all just go into captivity all at one time? And there's one specific reason God keeps His word. You see, God made a promise. He promised David. 2 Kings 8.19 tells us the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant since he had promised him to give a lamp to him through his sons always. That lamp ultimately would be Jesus Christ. And until that lamp was born into the world, until Emmanuel, God with us, came on the scene, the Lord maintained Judah as a home for his people. I thought they were sent into captivity in Babylon. They were. But there was always a presence of Jewish people in Jerusalem. Always. And after 70 years of captivity, the people came back to Judah. They would be weakened. They would never rise to the, to the power and authority that they once had under David or Solomon. But they did come back. They were there all the way to the point of the birth of Jesus Christ, who was the lamp that God promised would come through the line of David. He came just as the Lord said he would. Verse 20. Verse 20 as kind of a, a summing up of all that happened to northern Israel. The story in a nutshell tells us the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of the plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam, the son of Nebat king. And then Jeroboam drove Israel away from following the Lord and made them commit a great sin. The sons of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did and did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel from his sight as he spoke through all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was carried away into exile from their own land to Assyria until this day, which once again is the day of the writing of 2 Kings. So we know 2 Kings was written sometime after the fall of Israel 
but just prior to the fall of, of Judah which is how the book eventually here will end but what happened in the land of Israel after the people were driven out what was the state of things that's what the rest of the chapter explains to us verse 24 says the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Kutha and from Ava and from Hamat and from Sepharvaim and settled them in the cities of Samaria in place of the sons of Israel so they possessed Samaria and lived in its cities it's called an occupation (laughs) some have tried to say America's occupying Iraq an occupation it's not an occupation it's a very different thing. An occupation is when a conquering country, and this happened all the time back in these days, when a conquering country, uh, country comes in and begins to take other people from other countries that they have conquered and settle them there to maintain control and power and authority over it. Unlike what we're doing in Iraq, which is sending men and women in to try and bring balance and order back to it before we pull out and allow them to be their own country. That is not what was going on here with Assyria. He wasn't trying to restore Israel to its strength. He was planting and seeding foreigners in the land. A, a great mixture of people. It's not an occupation. People nowadays say Israel is occupying the West Bank because they're living there. and It's, it's Palestinian territory. It's not an occupation. It's the land biblically and rightfully given to the people of Israel. We can get into that in another discussion another time. Verse 25 going on. He begins to tell what happens there. The beginning of their living there, they did not fear the Lord. That is, all these people from the different nations. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations whom you have carried away into exile in the cities of Samaria do not know the custom of the God of the land. So he has sent lions among them, and behold, they kill them, because they do not know the custom of the God of the land. So all these foreigners now living in Israel, they don't know God, so they assume, as the pagans would, that these lion attacks are from another God, and they're not worshipping the right way. So, verse 27, the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Take there one of the priests, whom you carried away into exile, and let him go and live there, and let him teach them the custom of the God of the land. I love this. So one of the priests whom they had carried away into exile from Samaria came and lived at Beth-el and taught them how they should fear the Lord. You see, Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. But when that light went out, when the bulb popped and went into captivity, what did God do? He made sure that a voice of truth was still heard in the land. A priest now is it's surreptitious evangelism. The king of Assyria has no idea what he's doing. He is setting up a people to hear about the truth of God from this one little priest in Bethel. The Lord always maintains an evangelical voice. He's going to do it, by the way, again in the time of tribulation. Though the church is gone, not present anymore on the face of the earth, but we think in terms of our great evangelistic campaigns that we can save the world and change the world, the Bible indicates, gang, more people are going to come to Christ and find salvation through the work of God without the church than in 2,000 years of church history. It's amazing. doesn't mean that we don't continue to evangelize the world. doesn't mean we don't, with every breath, speak the name of Jesus. But the reality is the power of coming to faith comes from the Holy Spirit, not from the work of man. So he sends this priest and now he's beginning to talk and teach the people how to worship the God of this land because the pagans wanted to appease this God. Interesting. By the way, what we're seeing here is the early development of a brand new people group. 
These are captives from Babylon and captives from, from Kutha and captives from Avah and all these cities listed in verse 24. These are other captives of the king of Assyria that he now has them in captivity so he is replanting them in Israel in Samaria and they will eventually be known as the Samaritans. This is the root of where that people grew and where that people came from. They were hated by the Jews. Why were the Samaritans so hated? Because they were a mixture. They were not pure-blooded Jews. There were pure-blooded Jews who were there, who were left there in the land, who were intermingling and mixing and intermarrying, and the races became all kind of a hodgepodge, a melting pot, called the Samaritans, and the Jewish people said, we'll have none of that. We don't want anything to do with those people. They are not of us. They're a mixture of what the Israelites, even today a Jewish people would say, they're, they're the goy, the goyim. And goy is the Hebrew word for nation or for outsider or for Gentile. And it's, it's actually kind of a, a slang negative word that, that they'll use. Verse 29. It says, Every nation, that is goyim, still made gods of its own and put them in the houses of the high places which the people of Samaria had made. Every nation in their cities in which they live. So, so they're being taught to follow the God of Israel, but they're still following their gods as well. In fact, it says, the men of Babylon, and he's going to list seven gods here. They made Sukkot Benat. The men of Kuth made Nurgal. The men of Hamat made Ashima. The Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak. And the Sephirites burned their children in the fire to, watch this, Adramolech, Molech. This is just another variation of Molech and Anamolech, the gods of Sepharvaim. So they, they're following all these other gods and the gods listed there are interesting. I'm not going to go into them tonight. You can do that if you'd like to. The point is, they maintained all their foreign gods and brought them into the land when they were settled in Samaria. They also, verse 32, feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves priests of the high places who acted for them in the houses of the high places. It tells us in verse 33, They feared the Lord and served their own gods according to the custom of the nations from among whom they had been carried away into exile. To this day, they do, not, they do according to the earlier customs. Now watch, he says, They do not fear the Lord. Well, wait a minute, verse 33 said they feared the Lord. The problem is that they feared the Lord along with all the other idols. They didn't fear the Lord exclusively as he always calls people to do. Nor do they follow their statutes or their ordinances or the law or the commandments which the Lord commanded the sons of Jacob who he named Israel. And now there's going to be a sum up of this. With whom the Lord made a covenant and commanded them saying you shall not fear other gods nor bow down yourselves to them nor serve them nor sacrifice to them. But the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt with great power and with an outstretched arm you shall fear. And to him you shall bow yourselves down and to him you shall sacrifice the statutes and the ordinances and the law and the commandment which he wrote for you you shall observe to do forever you shall not fear other gods it said again the covenant that I made with you you shall not forget nor shall you for the third time nor shall you fear other gods but the Lord your God you shall fear and he will deliver you from the hand of your enemies however verse 41 they did not listen but they did according to their earlier custom so while these nations fear the Lord, they also serve their idols. Their children likewise and their grandchildren as their father did, so they do to this day. So these Samaritans, this mixture of people from all the nations, are being taught by this priest in Bethel how to fear the Lord. 
And that little summation in those last few verses is what he was teaching them. The ordinances, the statutes, the teachings of God to Israel. And what's implied here is through this priest, the Lord is saying, I'll bless you if you will walk in these ways. I will care for you if if you'll keep my commandments. You're not even Jewish people, but if you'll keep my commandments, I'll bless you. I'll take care of you. But even though this priest is proclaiming truth, the Samaritan people, this new people, this mixture, they'll believe God, but they're going to believe all the other gods as well. There's a word for this. And the word is syncretism. Syncretism. The definition is a combination of different forms of religious belief or practice. A fusion of two or more originally different forms to attempt to unite and harmonize without critical examination or logical unity. Just this last week, some statements have been brought up from a year ago and are beginning to be scrutinized and repeated. There are statements given in a speech that Barack Obama made in June 2007. I will tell you exactly what he said, his words. Whatever we once were, we're no longer a Christian nation. At least not just. We're also a Jewish nation, a Muslim nation, a Buddhist nation, a Hindu nation, and a nation of non-believers. Somehow, somewhere along the way, Faith stopped being used to bring us together and started being used to drive us apart. It got hijacked. Part of it's because of the so-called leaders of the Christian right who've been all too eager to exploit what divides us, he said. Which is interesting because it sounds like he's exploiting what they're doing. Anyway. Just recently when asked to clarify last year's remarks, Obama repeated them word for word. We are no longer a Christian nation. And you know what? He's right. Syncretism. We are a Muslim nation and a Hindu nation and a Buddhist nation. But my friends, mixtures always lead to disaster where faith is concerned. When we try to take the pure truth of Scripture, when we try to take the truth of who God is and what He proclaims and draw in other aspects other ways other belief systems and and meld it all together which is what some would have us do in this country let's just throw it wide open you know what it was freedom to worship the one true God when this country started now it's freedom to worship whatever God you want and multiple gods if that so pleases you it's syncretism it's a mixture and Jesus said in Revelation 3.15 I know your deeds You're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. But because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Sometimes I mess up my tea just that way. I'll make a nice steaming hot cup of tea and I pour in just a little bit too much milk and I mix it all together and it ends up lukewarm and it's just no good. It has to go in the microwave. It has to be dealt with. And the Lord is saying, if you mix the hot and the cold... If you try and bring in that and this, put it all together and say, it's okay, we'll just all tolerate each other. I'm going to spit you out. Because there's only one truth. Because there are absolutes. Because there are standards and values worth living by that I declare to you. Part of the reason the Jews hated Samaria so much was it was so tolerant of so many different beliefs. It was a mixture. Hate the Samaritans. They're unlike us, the pure 
Jews in Jerusalem. We have the temple, we have the one true God, we have the commandments, and the Samaritans have a big old mess and they would have nothing to do with them. And many of you know this, they avoided Samaria altogether. They wouldn't even walk through it. There were roads built to go around Samaria the long way so they wouldn't have to pass through that country because to them it was unclean. Of course, one man had to go to Samaria. He had to. The Bible says exactly those words. He had to go to Samaria. John chapter 4. For it was there in Samaria that this one man identified himself for the first time publicly to be the Messiah. I love that. He doesn't do it at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. He doesn't do it there in the streets. He doesn't even do it up in the Galilee. He goes into the outsider location, the mixture, the hodgepodge, the mess. He goes in there and he says, I who you're talking to am he. The woman, the Samaritan woman by the well says, we know Messiah is coming. He says, yep, here I am. He goes into Samaria that syncretistic Samaria that's the place Jesus chose to reveal himself and it was there that Jesus would say a few minutes later as his apostles came back shocked that he was talking to a Samaritan he said to them in John 4.35 do you not say it yet there are four months and then comes the harvest behold I say to you lift up your eyes and look on the fields they are white for the harvest Already he who reaps and is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. Jesus gives us a principle here that should really encourage us in America of 2008. And that's simply this. Yes, we are no longer the Christian nation we once were. We no longer have the values and the standards. And it can be really depressing and really disappointing. And we can look out and say, look at all that we've lost. Or we can say, it's in a syncretistic world that the absolute truths of God stand out in stark contrast. It's in a world that is so messed up, that is so dark, that the lightness is pervasive. That the message of the gospel that you and I have to share in the world today can be more crystal clear than ever before because the world is so dark. That's good news. It is this time, this season, that Jesus says, open your eyes. It's harvest. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth contained herein. We thank you, Lord, for all that you teach us. We thank you, Father, for the way that you open our eyes wide to exactly what's happening in the world around us, that that we can make comparisons. Father, it breaks our hearts to think of America like Israel, and yet we see so much of the same patterns. We see so much of the same direction, Lord. And so, Father, though our hearts break at what we see, I pray that you will give us boldness and encouragement to speak of Jesus more now than ever before. Give us assurance, Father, in these mixed up days that you are still at work and that the gospel message is clear. May it be pronounced among us, Father, as you lead us to that glorious time when you will be the Lord over all the earth, reigning and ruling from Jerusalem for that, for that great kingdom promise of Israel. And even beyond that, Father, lead us to the day when you will create the new heavens and the new earth and we will go into eternity worshiping the one true God. 
Father, thank you for the blessing of your word in Jesus' name. Amen.